Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and you're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. Our bodies and all living systems accomplish tasks far more sophisticated and dynamic than any entity yet designed by humans. The mission of the Wyss Institute is to transform healthcare, industry, and the environment by emulating the way nature builds. Wyss founding director Don Ingber believes that there's a huge disconnect between science and the public because too often in school, science is seen as rote memorization. You can memorize scientific facts, he says, but that's not science. Science is the pursuit of the unknown. And Inger's urge to find new ways to communicate that pursuit were rewarded when he was contacted by Charles Riley, a molecular biophysicist from New Zealand, who also happened to be a professional animator and formerly worked at the studio of Peter Jackson, writer, director, producer of the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies. Using film industry and visual effects tools, Charles Riley uses animation and simulation to merge data from many disciplines to create more accurate depictions and predictions of the natural world. He's currently applying his work to rational drug design and understanding the molecular mechanisms of disease. In 2017, he was named a young pioneer in physics by the World Frontiers Forum. Ingber is a leader in the emerging field of biologically inspired engineering. He also leads the Biomimetic Microsystems platform at the Wyss, in which microfabrication techniques from the computer industry are used to build functional circuits with living cells as components. Founding director of the Wyss, he's authored more than 425 publications and 150 patents and received numerous distinctions in his field. Charles was looking for an environment where he could make scientific discoveries while making art, and Don had found somebody who might be able to make a long-time fantasy project finally happen. So out of the blue comes this email from Charles saying, you know, I'm from New Zealand. I, uh, I work with Peter Jackson films. I know animation. I, I also trained in molecular biophysics and know molecular dynamic simulation. And I was told, you are the person I have to work with. Right, right. He, not, I, I do remember vividly when he came to visit me. I said, well, tell me your story. And my memory of this, and he may have a different version, is he said, uh, well, I grew up. Uh, in New Zealand, my parents were dairy farmers. It was actually, we grew up in the valley that was used for the f filming of The Hobbit, you know, and I, I always view him as growing up in the Shire, but that's a whole <laughs> other story. Um, <laughs> and he had been working in Australia on a book version of Life on Earth, or I think it was, for Apple Computer, mm -hmm. Apple Computer mm -hmm. Sponsored. And he showed me this unbelievably gorgeous animation of molecules working in concert, like things I had never seen, how beautiful it was. So I offered him a job. I wasn't sure what we do. He told me about his vision that, you know, you, we, you could advance science through using, you know, this physics-based animation. I said, I totally agree. I've seen this physics-based animation. I'm trying to figure out, like, how I could, you know, ever get people to work here because everyone I met who does it ends up forming companies and doing ads for pharmaceutical companies. So that's how he became involved. I think he came really wanting to do science, like, like let's get together on a project and show how this would work. I, I told him, I, I just, I don't have a question where animating it would address that. I wasn't working on molecules. I wasn't working, you know, it just, I wasn't really doing tensegrity-based stuff anymore. But when Charles came, I had this vision of like, why don't we start with something that's entertaining, but actually be able to communicate and introduce the Wyss Institute to the world 
in a different way, in a creative way, in a way to enable public communications appreciation of science. And let's play. So we played. Riley is now a VIS staff scientist, and together the two of them created a visualization of sperm competing with each other to fertilize an egg that is accurate at the micro, molecular, and atomic levels. Just under three minutes long, the beginning opens with a crawl, similar to the crawl at the start of Star Wars. Yellow text receding into the vastness of space points out that, quote, only the victor will influence generations to come a scientifically accurate assessment of the winning sperm's reward. Oh, and by the way, they actually made a new scientific discovery in the process. There's many scientists that were inspired and drawn to science through Star Wars. And so Don was inspired by um, Star Wars, uh, but also some of the earlier photography of uh, sort of the sperm and the egg we knew we wanted to do a project that kind of paralleled the complexity of biology with the vastness of space. They've seen the Star Wars. They've seen the sci-fi movies. They've thought about that. Now you're telling them similar adventures are going on at a molecular level inside your body or the bodies of other folks. Yeah, that's exactly it. What happens next? I moved to Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's basically you start looking at the data, um, seeing what's known, what isn't known, um, understanding what makes up a sperm, seeing if I can model or simulate things, and then just iterating and just working on developing the models and being able to throw them out and start again. And then once we started to understand that we could produce these models and have them uh, look like sperm, we could move across the different spatial scales, so all the way into the dynein molecular machines in the sperm tail, and then zoom back out and see a whole swarm of, I'm not actually sure if swarm is the right term, but (laughs) (laughs) a flock um, (laughs) of sperm, and making sure that we could do that. Then we start doing storyboarding and making sure that we could produce a a look that felt like Star Wars. And all the while, um, so my big goal was that this process informed the science. And it turned out it did. I'm curious what's new for Charles on this project, what's new in the technical side of his simulation work, and what's the new thing they discovered in this process which we did not previously know. And when we're doing simulations, the temperature of the system is linked to time. So the velocity of all the molecules, or of all the atoms in the system, represent the temperature. By heating it up we, and running it at a higher temperature, we kind of make it run faster without it falling apart. Whereas if we just make it run hotter and faster, the whole system would have blown up. Like, literally, the, the, the molecule just blows to pieces. <laughs> so because you're doing this in a virtual world, yeah. you can tweak some of the conditions. Precisely, yeah. By using our biology and trying to trick the system, we put in a few constraints, a few mechanical constraints, so that the molecule wouldn't kind of wander away when we heated it up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... 
we just wanted to anchor it so it wouldn't drift away. But that provided a mechanical constraint that exists within the actual sperm tail. And what happened was this prevented not just the wandering of the entire molecule, but it reduced the degrees of freedom of motion of the whole molecule. It kind of provided a a hinge. And so all that extra energy we introduced, all that heat, that hinge was like a funnel for the energy. The energy was transferred throughout the molecule in a very particular way that wouldn't have happened had that hinge not been in that location. And it turns out that the walking motion of the dynein was a result of the transfer of energy throughout the molecule that only happened because of this hinge. So so let me see if I'm right here. You introduce an artistic trick based on your knowledge of special effects uh, algorithms and your knowledge of biology, and it turns out that that trick confirms something that actually happens in nature that we didn't know happened? Precisely. Don Ingber goes into much greater detail as he recounts Riley's process of creative discovery. First of all, I guess he was starting to do this multi-scale modeling where you can actually see for the sperm tail moving at the level of the whole cell and then also visualize how that influences what's happening at the molecular level below, or I should say it at the opposite way, how the, the actions at the, at the molecular level and atomic level below influence the motion of the tail at the higher level. Right. So, it, let, me, it, let me just it, jump in for yeah. people so they can visualize yeah. it. So if you're seeing a sperm, we know that's minute anyway, but what you're saying right. is that you go inside the sperm's tail to see what the molecular machinery going on inside of that is. Yeah, we go, to, amazingly, you go down to the atomic scale. Life is a, is, a, is a hierarchy of increasing complex structures that self-assemble by components joining together with other components. And so the, the atoms make up small chemicals, and then these chemicals build larger structures like a protein made of amino acids. Amino acids are made of chemicals. Those proteins have a three-dimensional shape. They then come together with other proteins, let's say, and they make structures like they'll make rods or they'll make, you know, a column or they'll make, you know, a cube. But in the tail of the sperm, there are these long uh, filaments, they're called microtubules, that are relatively rigid but, but somewhat flexible. They form a hollow shell, if you like, and between them, connecting them, are other molecules that actually are motors and they're called motors because when they change their shape a particular way and they they push on the microtubules and they cause them to slide like if you were to row a boat and you pull on the oars the oars would like push the water away well these oars push the microtubules all in the same direction and it's well known that there's thousands of these molecules lined up along these on the side of these long tubules and it, again it's three dimensional right well, by these, by pushing left to right, it actually makes the tail, the, the long column, which forms the core of the tail, bend one way or the other. And that's actually how you get motion as a sperm. That's what uh, I was thinking, yeah. Right. And now, the, but, the way, but at another level, the, the way you pull on your oars is the, the atoms in the molecule 
are changing relative to position relative to one another due to transfer of forces. And, and so compressive and tensile forces. And so Charles is able to take what, what uh, you know, molecular biophysicists do, which is they have, they call it molecular dynamic simulations. They use computers to model every position of every atom in a protein, and you can view it in three dimensions. And the way they get the positions of that atoms are, are generally two ways. One is they form a crystal they basically rigidify the protein, and they could use x-rays and other imaging to basically get out where every atom is, and they get very, very high resolution. Or they can sort of freeze the molecules when they're flexible, so they're like in various shapes, and then they can image them with an electron microscope. And this just won the Nobel Prize recently, oh. <laughs> uh, cryo-electron microscopy. And then they can get the various shapes it can be, and not that one frozen one, but lower resolution. What Charles did, and this really is his inspiration, which was, I think, amazing, is that he took the highest resolution image of this motor protein. He depicted that. Then he used the, the physics-based animation software to e explore, starting with that shape, like what potential shapes could it take on and in a, in a smooth, continuous, realistic, physical, in the physical world way. Then he put it in the context of these microtubules inside that column, like how could it move inside that column so that everything could be consistent and things wouldn't be, you know, crossing over, interfering with each other. And out of it came this path of how it moves, the motor generates force, that crosses over with this lower resolution cryo-electron microscopic data that's been published. So he's able to do things at a higher resolution and explore visually, dynamically, things that you really can't do easily with conventional scientific software, which is, I think, amazing. Plus, one of the big problems in science is that people do computational modeling at the, the body level, the organ level, the tissue level, the cell level, molecular level, but they're totally different models. And so there's people in all different fields say there's a challenge of like, how do you relate one model at this level and integrate it with the other? With the simulation software, we did, this was done just seamlessly. So yes, an animation, an entertainment industry may want to do the sperm fertilizing the egg. It'll look like a sperm. It'll look like an egg. It'll it'll move like movies you've seen on television. But this one does all that, and it does it based on molecules changing their shape, sliding these bundles, and then driving the tail in a way that scientists have actually confirmed happens in the real world. The other thing is that scientists usually will give you a model that shows you the average movement. Whereas we know from looking at real sperm, for example, everyone is an individual. They move all different ways. With this software, we can, we had thousands of sperm moving in all different ways because you can change the parameters to explore that evolutionary space. Wow. One thing I must say, that image that you described in the in the animation in the, the that I've watched, it I have to say it looks like a Busby Berkeley. It's uh, absolutely beautiful. It I looks mean, like all the rocket dancing in unison. <laughs> it looks like and and it, and that's how it must work in our bodies. But usually you'll see a, a static diagram of that molecule in three different shapes, which probably aren't all correct. And and even if they were correct, it's static and it's one molecule at a time. This shows it all together, and it's, it's, it's exciting, I think. It's really amazing.
so what Charles is able to do, and, and this I grasped from my conversation with him, is takes the latest, latest cutting-edge scientific simulation software and the algorithms they can produce, and then he takes the latest cutting-edge animation special effects software, and he moves back and forth between the two, doing things that neither one would either be able to do or and, think and to counterpointing do. it with real experimental data at different size scales. Right, and so what you had going on was it's 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 a physical depiction. It is at you're 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 taking on that problem that most avoid, which is doing it at different scales. Um, you're doing it with accuracy. And um, and thus you're sort of pushing the envelope that neither of neither the animators nor the scientific simulators would have taken on. I, I think that's fair. What happened when you discovered that the process is revealing things that hadn't been seen or known before? Um, did that change the way you were working on it? You know, we wanted to say at the end of the film, and I guess we. I don't think we did it in the end, but it was something like, like no physics was sacrificed in the making of this film, right? You know, just like like uh, no, no physical laws were no physical laws broken. were broken. Yes, exactly. And I have to say, we submitted this paper to a number of journals, many, maybe four different journals that turned it down. Some wouldn't even review it. The big journals wouldn't review it, but we sent it to other journals, and they they reviewed it, and there'd always be one reviewer who just assumed. This is purely animation, not linked to reality. The upside of having a reviewer is, is it did push us to go back and explore and validate what we were doing. And, and is, was there an advance here? And I think it was during that review process where we actually went and took a more scientific perspective, which was, you know, we knew that we used this high quality data. So we must be able to, we must be reproducing that visually, but we confirmed that. But that's when we counterpointed, like, the structures that we were doing compared to published papers on cryo-electron microscopic visualizations of it. And we could show that, yeah, we get that too. And then we realized, but we get better resolution. You know what I mean? So some of it came from now the scientific attacks, if you like, or criticism, constructive mm -hmm, criticisms, mm -hmm. if you want, that led us to have to validate that this actually was as good or better than what's out there. And that was after we pretty much had done the film. Now that their belief that pursuing art could produce scientific discovery has been validated, I want to take a step back and look for some of the roots that led both of them to see the world and their work with fresh eyes. First, Charles. First of all, I grew up on a farm, so when you're farming, especially in an isolated area, you have to just do everything and figure out everything um, just on the fly. I didn't even really know what kind of professions were out there. I always just, uh, it, there was kind of math, English and science and physical education. And that was kind of the education. And then people went on to be doctors or something like that. And I was exposed to poetry actually in my later years in high school. And that's actually when I first started to think more about how I wanted to try and understand the world. So when I left high school, first of all, I hitchhiked around New Zealand for a couple of months and then moved to London where I wanted to be a writer, a poet, and just trying to understand humanity. And I ended up 
working for Greenpeace. And at the time, um, genetic engineering was a big topic. I was never comfortable just listening to propaganda. I always wanted to know more about a subject. And so I became more and more curious about biological engineering. And so I then decided I'd go back and get a degree. I felt that I needed credibility in biology and chemistry and kind of the physical subjects in order to explore that with rigor, I guess. So I did my undergrad in biomedical engineering in Wellington, New Zealand. I then went to art school. At this point, I still hadn't found the medium I wanted. I knew the kind of subject matter I wanted to explore, but I didn't know how I was going to do it. I'm very interested in the mechanics of biology and so how changes in the molecular structure influence the way the body works. But then I was also very interested in why do we get along or why Mm -hmm. do, do our emotions cause resentments or why do conflicts emerge and there was nothing really drawing those um exploring those questions i got a job in uh, post-production in wellington peter jackson's studio but again because i was the chemistry guy i always felt like i wasn't taken seriously creatively and again i was just a small cog in a big machine that's when i decided i wanted to do a phd And that's when I moved to Melbourne, Australia, and I started studying immunology. During this time, I was exploring animation tools uh, and just art on the side, but still exploring the same subject matter, but without any constraints. I worked on an interactive textbook for a little while at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. I'm uh, working with these simulations and animations for an artistic goal, but I'm developing hypotheses and I'm seeing things that are relevant to biological discovery. Charles explains to me how film visual effects artists employ sophisticated computational software and something akin to the scientific method to generate their spectacular images. You might want an explosion, so then you uh, simulate the explosion, but you didn't predict exactly what it would look like, but you tried to define these conditions that would make an explosion effect. And by defining all the rules of physics and this animation scene might be to produce a cinematic effect that is based on physics and is mathematical, but um, still curated, if you like. So there's this kind of allowing the computer to do the work and then you curate from the other end. Mm Mm-hmm. So you see, you see the result of this particular attempt, and you go, I want it bigger, I want it smaller, I want it more looking like a certain chemical instead of another, that, that sort of thing? Precisely. You know, as, you, as you're speaking, I remember a, a moment in my life that sticks in my mind, which is, I think it's 1973, and uh, I was actually back in Cambridge at the time, and I spoke with a computer artist, if you will, from MIT, And he told me that he could feed information into a computer program and create visual products within that program without having started with a physical photo or a physical image or anything. And in 1973, that notion blew my mind. And basically what we're talking about is where that possibility 
has evolved over the last, what are we talking, almost uh, 50 years. Precisely. And one of the movies that really made a big difference in my life actually was The Matrix. In my work, it really does come down to there is no spoon. There is that idea of because we're in the computer, we can mix data that doesn't belong together. Mm-hmm. We, can, we can bend the spoon with, and we can just really expand as much as you can and, and be playful without breaking. Riley says he's mixed in scientific simulation and modeling software with physics-based special effects software. I can borrow from both domains, so I can easily myself just quickly alternate between tools that are normally separated. Mm-hmm. And let me, let me ask, in the visual effects world, they are really results-driven. There's a timeline on this production. There's, there's a timeline on this sequence. There's a budget on this sequence, and your piece has to be ready <laughs> when they need it. Has that forced them to move, in some ways perhaps, further in the modeling, in this type of approach you're talking about, than a scientist working in a research facility might be forced to. Absolutely. And I think that is um, part of my motivations for really trying to get this kind of work done in a place like the Wyss Institute is because they are making these huge leaps because of those essentially market constraints it's not that you're abandoning this concept of curiosity-driven, but it just pulls it in a different direction. And I think that that's what these um, the entertainment industry has done on a lot of these tools. If the Wyss Institute is one of the more collaborative institutes in the world, I would say for science, uh, the film industry is the, one of the most collaborative art forms in the world. I asked what led to his contacting Don Ingber. I was always sharing what I wanted to do, and there's a lot of people just rolling their eyes or saying, oh, you, sounds like you want to make up your own field. Um, and I, I was kind of like, well, yeah, I kind of do. And then I was um, just sharing that idea with somebody who was an illustrator, and I, I shared with them how I wanted to do art, not just illustration and have that art drive the science. And so they said you should talk to Don Ingber. Well, I I view the world as not having any boundaries between disciplines or focus areas, even application areas. And I've I've sort of always been that way, even since the time I was, you know, a Yale undergrad. And when I was an undergrad at Yale, I actually was a science major, but I, I just had a passion for wanting to learn about art. And I had an experience in an art class, a sculpture class, that actually transformed my view of the world and and launched my trajectory in science. So I always view in the back of my head as art as a potential medium to play in that could be valuable in science. But, But that was pure serendipity. And so I never had the experience in a proactive way trying to explore whether one could use art to advance science. Can you tell us about that experience in sculpture class? It was almost impossible to get into art classes at Yale, but I was walking around campus 
And at this time, I was taking classes which were teaching us about molecular design, which is like the shape of molecules governs their functions. We're learning about viral structures being like geodesic structures. And all of a sudden, I see these kids walking around campus with these uh, polyhedral structures that were shaped like viruses. They look like viruses. And I asked them, like, "What what is that? What are you doing? And they said, oh, it's my sculpture class. And I said, what's the class called? And they said, three-dimensional design. And it was like, wow, like that's that's exactly what I do. So that's the way nature works. So I, I tried to get in the class and it was this big hulking Austrian professor, Erwin Hauer. I had a girlfriend at the time who was a sculptress taking a human body course with this same Erwin Hauer. She so said, let me introduce you to him. So I, I met him and he, he was a really tall. He looked down at me, really imposing. He said, you know, why do you want to take my course? And I basically said, well, at, you know, in biology, everything is three-dimensional design. He said, what do you mean? And, and I basically said, well, you know, when I contract my muscle, there's these helical fibers that would twist and shorten and actomyosin, they're called, and, and that would create tension. And he said, you're in my course. And then I would, like, I, I kind of didn't get it. And I just kept giving him examples, you know, and at smaller size scale and viral structure and DNA being, it's the shape of the DNA, the double heel. And he said, you're in my course. Just come Monday. So I, I showed up Monday. Uh, one day he had us, he said, go out by three foot long wood dowels and high tension fishing cord. And uh, we did that. And then he brought us to a machine shop and he cut the three foot dowels into one foot dowels. And we were all sitting in this classroom, you know, like work tables. And he said, you have three hours. I want to see you build structures that hold themselves up and, you know, off the ground in, in, in three-dimensional shapes. But the sticks can't touch. You could only connect them by strings. And he left. Mm. And we all lo- looked at each other and, like, we're trying to, like, pile sticks on top <laughs> of each other. And finally, one student who probably had seen the sculptures of the artist Kenneth Snelson built one of these, which are structures where it's like our bodies. They're held together by continuous tension rather than compression. So it's like the muscles pulling up our bones against the force of gravity through continuous connection of tensile muscles, tendons, and ligaments. This has sticks that are oriented in such a way that you could put strings, connect their ends, and they pull themselves up and open. And that, that was amazing. Once one person did it, we all started building every possible shape, which was a it was a really wonderful experience in the creative process. But at the end, the Erwin Howard came in, and he had his own round sculpture that was bigger, and it was and it, and it had um a, it had like bungee cords for the cables, and it was spherical. And as he talked about this thing and introduced us to what Tensegrity was and Buckminster Fuller, who had first coined the word, he would squish down on this round sculpture, and it would flatten, and he'd let go, and it would bounce off the table. And by pure serendipity, the week before, I had started culturing cancer cells in the medical school across campus. And it was the mid-70s, and I had been reading papers where they had just discovered a thing called the cytoskeleton, the cell skeleton, that there are these molecular filaments inside cells, including actomyosin filaments like the ones that generate tension in muscle. And when you culture cells, they grow on a dish You use enzyme to clip their anchors and move them from one dish to the other. And when they come off the dish, they're round. But when you put them on the next dish, they attach, pull against it, and spread flat. And then when you clip the anchors, they round. And so the rounding looked exactly like when I was 
trypsinizing cells using an enzyme trypsin to clip their anchors and they're coming off the dish. And because I'd heard about a cytoskeleton, I assumed that that's the way cells were built. And so when I went back to the biology lab one day, we were using a drug that actually caused the shape of the cell to change. And I remember saying, oh, the tensegrity changed. And the postdoc, the research person who was older than I was, said, what did you just say? And I said, <laughs> the tensegrity changed. So he said, what's that? I said, well, it's, you know, I'm taking this sculpture course, and it's like Buckminster Fuller and this, this artist. And he said, never say that again in this lab. <laughs> and so I shut up and went to the libraries, and that was sort of the beginning of the rest of my life. So you mentioned uh, Buckminster Fuller there, who, as yep. you said, was the first one to either discover or coin the term tensegrity. I'm going to ask you first, one more time, what does tensegrity mean? Tensegrity stands for tensional integrity, and it, and it describes structures that gain their shape stability, their mechanical properties like their stiffness or flexibility, based on having a continuous transmission of tensile pulling forces rather than brick-upon-brick brick compressive forces like the weight of one stone on top of another like Stonehenge, where if you hit it from the side, it falls like dominoes. Structures like our bodies, which use tension in our muscles to give us, you know, whether your arm's stiff or flexible, we're independent of gravity and, and direction in terms of shape stability. Uh, so, so it's really a building system. I recall that Fuller, whom I'd made a documentary about in the 70s, was the first that I'd heard point out that there are no departments in nature. In talking about art and science, art versus science, art mixing with science, am I in some way making a false dichotomy? Everybody is kind of interpreting the world around them based on the tools and the principles that they learn and the medium they can work through. Artists try to describe their worldview and they do it, you know, through the, the visual arts or, or, or music or other types of art. So we're all trying to describe the world and hopefully advance understanding of others by it. The difference about science is that we have to be able, in the end, to lead to an outcome that's just not your opinion, but that can predict, that, that others can repeat. In art, they're just these big people, you know, like Cezanne, Picasso, you know, make these jumps of, of how you view the world and present it to others. And the others who become incredible, great, you know, technicians at the process and do things in wonderful ways. So I think the the quantum leap scientists who, who take a view, try to get the big picture, are not so different than the, the, the big artists who try to convey the big picture. And therefore, they're looking at the gestalt, the whole system, not the every little element, but how things relate to one another. And that's often comes out in patterns, which scientists are looking for patterns, like detectives in a way, but artists are looking for patterns that they can, you know, convey to others some insight about how things work. So it's pretty similar, but we're all searching for patterns that give us insight into how things work. Because of his work on tensegrity, Don tells me he's participated in many meetings crossing art and science and was aware of the advanced and rigorous work of cutting-edge special effects animators. A student who was in uh, scientific communications grad school in Toronto, out of the blue, sent me a DVD that was hours long called The Architecture of Life about tensegrity in cells. My scientific American was called The Architecture of Life. And he basically sent this to me saying, this is my master's thesis and uh, I hope you enjoy it. And, and then he asked me whether I'd be an advisor on his thesis committee. And I sort of went up to Toronto and we talked about this. And then rather than going further towards a PhD, he decided to form a 
uh, animation company, which now is very successful <laughs> in advertising communications. But that's where I first learned that people in, in the animation industry, in entertainment, have been putting real physics into the animations. You know, when, when I was a kid and they had a, a Mickey Mouse cartoon animation, to get the arm to move, it would be the equivalent of a puppet. And so that was the first time I became aware that these entertainment people are being able to do visualize what's going on physically better than my scientific engineering collaborators who model tensegrity but give me a graph. Mm -hmm. and, and I can't communicate that to anybody, right? So I definitely saw, had that spark in my head. I'm curious, for someone like Charles who rejects silos, who focuses on a question or a problem with little regard for specialization, what it feels like to work at the Vise. It, it, it's the it, it's the je ne sais quoi, if you like, um, because if you put it on paper, why would I live in Boston with these winters to sit on a bus every morning to go work on my own at a computer in Longwood? Um, it doesn't make any sense, but it is amazing. It's the I can swivel on my chair and talk to my colleague. And he answers a question because he comes from a, mecha a mechanical engineering background. When I showed him the simulations and I said, oh, this is cool. This hinge-like thing is enabling the system to work. And he was like, of course, that's, you know, <laughs> that's mechanics. And so, and then I rotate to the other direction in my chair and I'll be speaking to someone from the communications team. And they just had an interview with somebody at the Cambridge campus. And they were working on some sort of robotics. It was a, a critical component in the next collaboration. And then you walk down the hallway and you run into the director and <laughs> you start the next project. And that's, um, that's really how it works. And, that, and uh, Don talks a lot about self-assembly, and that is, uh, it happens on a daily basis, and, and it really is by not forcing but removing the obstacles between collaborations or self-assembly. What's next for you? What are your next projects? The, 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 uh, the immediate projects is actually using a lot of the tools and simulation strategies that came out of this, the beginning movie for therapeutic design, so designing of drugs for specific diseases, and also discovery of targets for drugs. How does using a simulation approach help in drug discovery? Drugs always have a target, and those targets are often uh, large biomolecules, such as a protein. And if we're able to simulate um, a more accurate representation of what a protein looks like, we can be uh, take a, a more rational approach to designing a very specific targeted drug that will interact with that protein in a very um, specific way. And so by having a more robust or, or just a, a larger suite of simulation strategies, we can depict and um, predict how our targets might look and how they would interact with any drug we design. Interesting. And this isn't just theory. You're beginning this work and you're finding that, that, there's going, that, that it, it feels yeah. like it's going to be positive? 
yeah, um, we've already got very good results um, that, yeah, it's very exciting. In addition to his own work, I wonder how Charles sees his relationship to his field. Does he have a message for other fellow scientists? Yes, I think that um, I do want to encourage more people to take risks with their approach. Risk in the sense that to become more comfortable with doing things differently and to expand the paradigm of what it means to be a scientist. And in his artistic work, Riley wants to continue to grapple with some of the larger questions that have been driving him since his teen years on a farm in New Zealand. I want to tackle some of those questions of how do we connect our social behaviors or our the social biology with the molecular and cellular biology or understand how we are connected on this kind of biological continuum right from the molecular cellular level right up through the humanistic scale right the way through to the ecosystem mm-hmm. and through this um, exploring this in art through an artistic and scientific way together I think we can start to learn things from one scale that can be applied to another scale. So through this kind of uh, a metaphorical um, inquiry. Yeah, I see what you're saying is that in addition to what you plan to do in the science side, your artistic side may be where you're able to really take on some, some of that. Exactly. Okay. Thanks a lot, Charles Riley. <laughs> Thank you. Don Ingber is excited by the potential of combining Riley's simulation work with the visa's organs on chips, for example, in drug design. There's already what they call rational drug design, computer-assisted drug design, where they'll use simulation to depict a molecule and then sort of figure out where a drug binds to that molecule, where the key goes into the lock, if, if you like. And then they will, on the computer, try to put arbitrary shapes that are known chemical structures to fit that space and try to build some new molecule that will bind that site and thereby competitively inhibit with the, with the key. Um, that's a simple example. We're basically doing very similar things like that, but we're now doing it with what we think is you know, a higher resolution capability. We combine this, this sort of computer design with our human organs on chips systems where we can actually go very... So rather than just simulate it on the computer, we will we'll come up with a molecule, we'll synthesize that molecule, and then we could test it in a human organ on a chip, and a human organ on a chip recapitulates this, the, the organ-level structures and functions of you know, part of our lung, part of our liver, part of our kidney. And so we can then test our model or the molecule that we modeled, uh, designed, and, um, and we can make various versions of it, and then we can get results saying that actually when you test it in the human lung, this is better than that, is better than this. Then we can, re- we can iterate in by having Charles go back on the computer, figure out where all those molecules actually bind because they're all subtly different. And we could kind of triangulate in on like what's the best uh, site to target and then go deeper with designing new molecules and have this loop of iterative loop of design testing in a very high value, high-content system. Are there other things which now, as you imagine the next few years, challenges or inspirations that this is evoking in you? 
Well, one thing for me personally is that, you know, um, people had a hard time with this idea of tensegrity, that there are sort of sticks and strings inside cells and, in, and tissues and so forth. But, I, you know, I convinced a lot of them experimentally that this is true, that there's the microtubules that I mentioned before are kind of like relatively stiff, uh, you know, tent poles and the actomyosin filaments are contractile. And I think that people were convinced that what they could never really get was when I suggested that this is a design principle that guides how nature builds at all size scales in life. In my Scientific American, I started with the, from the atomic level to the molecule to the multi-molecular structure to the cell to the tissue to the organ to the body. Artists had described the human body this way. People accept that. I described the cell. People could not get it, but I think they kind of accept it now. But with this video, with the sperm fertilizing the egg, tensegrity just fell out of it. Uh, we saw it at multiple size scales in our models, and the models wouldn't work without it. And so I, for me, it, it may be a way to get back to, to actually visualize how tensegrity applies at, at all size scales. So that's something that's in the back of my head as well. Finally, you, you uh, care that scientific discoveries get translated into impact in the world. You also want better communication of science to the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I had an intersection years ago in the, with the entertainment industry through comedy writing, and, uh, and I did, and, and uh, I never really, you know, did it professionally, but I was it, it, try, damn close. <laughs> and um, the one thing I guess I, 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 I learned out of the process is that I really believe you don't truly connect with people and get their full attention unless you ignite their emotions. It could be laughing, it could be crying, but if you are telling a story that is passionate and personal or gets them laughing or crying, they're there. You are linked. But if you are there, if you are trying to be didactic and just like tell people how excited they should be because of how something works, which you're excited about, which is often how a lot of scientific communications is, is just, you know, t telling it in a, in a relatively dry way. Some people will like it, but you're not going to get the broad population that, uh, you know, that a really funny, you know, like humorous film would would get. And how does he see the beginning, the short film, in terms of that challenge? So, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process where you're trying to put little breadcrumbs out to get people to move in a direction. And that, you know, you're not going to teach people about, about molecular biophysics by showing them a sperm film. But at least one out of 100 kids might just see how beautiful those molecules dancing in unison, as you describe, Busby Berkeley motions, and be intrigued by that and go on into, you know, want to learn more about science. And I remember uh, as a kid going to the World's Fair in New York and, you know, and seeing these exhibits that, uh, t you know, that, and conveyed the, 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 the hope that technology will solve the world's problems. And that you know, dragged me in that direction. It's, you know, it's life's a nonlinear path. I once described my life as sort of a Brownian walk. You know, Brownian walk in physics is the atoms sort of move randomly and cells move in a, a Brownian walk. They kind of, they, they lean this way, they move that way, they move this, they move that way. But with cells, if you have a stimulus, like if you have a wound, 
chemicals are given out and there's a gradient. And so they move in what's called a biased random walk. That means they go this, they go that, but they tend to go that a little bit more than they go this. And they end up moving towards the where they want to be. And I said that, you know, if you do that towards your passion, then you'll end up where you need to be in life. And I think if we can get kids seeing things that, you know, are like exciting and attractive and like, like look so cool, we might pull more of them in that direction. I, I'm not going to necessarily convince people that are a lot older, but I think for kids, it might just do it. You know, that the key is getting people's emotionally involved, whether it's because you're telling a story and they're just following every word that's very personal or laughing or crying. Communication should be, should be pulling people into the, this story, into this narrative that it's like reading a book, like they may not want to, you know, put it down. And I think in the current culture, we need to get kids coming into science, especially in America, where there's the, uh, there seems to be less and less you know, children that are American going into science. People from all over the world are coming into science, but it's, you know, they tend to go into different areas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's funny. I, I had, uh, I often hear people say, well, everything is biology. And then I often hear people say, everything is narrative. And it seems to me what we're talking about <laughs> is that everything is case. both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks great, a lot, Don. talking as always. Okay. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Disruptive, the Art of Science. I'm Terrence McNally. My guests have been Don Ingber and Charles Riley. You can learn more about their work as well as a broad and exciting range of other projects at the VIS website, vis.harvard.edu. That's W-Y-S-S where you'll find articles, videos, animations, and additional podcasts. In fact, Don Ingber has been featured in another episode of Disruptive. To have podcasts delivered to you, you can sign up at the V site or on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud.com. My thanks to Seth Kroll and Mary Talikas of the V Institute, and to J.C. Swadek in production, and to you, our listeners. I look forward to being with you again soon. Please share this podcast widely.